Welcome back to the Messy Reformation. My name is Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at Pease CRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we recognize that whenever Reformation happens, things get messy. And we're starting to see things get messy now in the CRC. So we're taking the opportunity to have conversations with pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's happening in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. Also, you can find us on our website at themessyreformation.com. You can also find us on Facebook. And if you like what we're doing and want to support what we're doing, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash themessyreformation. The money you give there will go toward audio equipment, podcast hosting, website hosting, and a future Messy Reformation conference. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's episode where we have a conversation with Willie about race in the United States and the CRC. So this episode's going to be a little different than our normal episode for a uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one being Willie has not been able to join us for quite a while, so his voice has not been able to uh, be heard. And so I decided I wanted to give Willie this whole episode. And so rather than um, interviewing somebody new, we're going to interview Willie and give him the whole episode to kind of talk. And because of that, um, and a couple of other factors based on conversations Willie and I have been having lately, and based on the fact that it is Black History Month this month, and so there's a lot of conversation about race, we decided that we wanted to focus this uh, this episode on the conversation that's happening around race in the United States and even in the CRC. And so we're going to give Willie an opportunity to kind of give his thoughts and uh, experience around race in uh, the U.S. and in the CRC. Um, but I think it would be helpful for us to start the episode off and give Willie an opportunity to kind of give us a little background on his life and where he come came from and where he grew up. So Willie, why don't you start off there? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so for those of you who don't know me or much of my history and background, uh, I was actually adopted uh, at about two and a half weeks old. I was adopted um, by my parents, uh, my adoptive parents, Ken and Terry Cronkey. Uh, so it was pretty much from the point of infancy uh, that I was adopted. So that parenthood, that structure, that family unit is pretty much all I have known uh, my entire life. Um, so that's a little bit of that. Um, I was brought home. They lived in, and I grew up in, uh, rural Princeton, Minnesota, uh, very small town. I, I think there's like 4,000 people in that town. Um, grew up there. I was born in 1993. I think we finally ended up moving to Malacca in about 2003. So I spent about the first 10 years of my life. Uh, in small town Princeton, only to move up to even smaller town Malacca, Minnesota, uh, which has a population of just barely scraping 3,000 uh, people. And uh, I grew up 
in a neighborhood and school where I think there were four or five African-Americans total, including myself. Uh, so it was, it was a pretty white environment that I grew up in. Um, to me, though, and I was telling Jason this a little bit before we began here, uh, I never really thought about it that way because um, my race, my ethnicity, that's, that's not something typically that I include in my story very much. Um, but I, I think for the purposes of this conversation, um, I, I think it could be helpful because it highlights the fact that I, I really did grow up in a, a pretty vast minority uh, where I grew up. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of how my story started. And I, I think in Malacca now that the African-American population is, is still very small. Um, and that's that's honestly just the place that we're in geographically. Um, not many African-Americans are moving here from other places. No one is really seeking work here. Um, no one has establishments or structures specifically uh, here that they're looking to to move to. So there's not a huge uh, pool of us, I guess you could say. So that's kind of my context of where I've been for the last, well, 28 going on 29 years. Yeah, amen. And uh, one of the things I would be interested in having you just address, um, just from experience, um, and this kind of comes out of, not not that I want to jump in and be controversial right away, but you know, recently Bethany Christian Services decided to to no longer allow black children to be adopted into white homes. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I guess I would like to just hear from you, like, what was it like being a, a black child adopted into a white home and growing up in a primarily white community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that question. First of all, I, I find that from Bethany Christian House, just absolutely appalling. Uh, and under that act, as was told in my story, I could not have been adopted by my parents. Um, and it was through that adoption that I experienced so many uh, blessings, uh, all from the Lord and in his sovereignty and his providence, uh, that he's so richly and, and freely given me. And that would not have been afforded to me under, under this new enactment. So I, I, I just find that wrong on so many levels. Um, but as far as uh, my, my parents and how they raised me, um, the thing that I appreciated the most about my parents is they, they really didn't raise me to see race at the forefront of things. Um, they said, everybody, no matter what color you are, is a person. They are individuals. And they are, all of them, equally made in the image of God himself. So those conversations about race and why these things happen, why, why that thing happened, uh, really wasn't a huge talking point in my home and in my household. Um, it, it was something to be aware of, especially when you do see instances of legitimate racism or prejudice and uh, being able to call those things out when you do see them. But I would say as, as far as my formative years growing up, those conversations really weren't at the uh, the forefront of my mind. Um, so yeah, that's a little more context into my past. Yeah, and actually, this is a question I've never asked you. I mean, we've talked about it a little bit, but I never have asked you this blatantly flat out. But in growing up as a, 
a significant minority in rural Minnesota, like you said, probably like five black people in the entire city, <laughs> the entire mm-hmm. town we lived in. Um, did you ex- did you have did you have any experiences of like overt racism um, growing up in in the like Princeton Malacca area? Uh, in the Princeton area, I can't speak to as much because it was so far into my youth that my recollection is is pretty vague. Um, but into my more uh, cognitive years, my more formative years, I, I can say I I, pro- I did experience some uh, legitimate forms of racism and instances of racism. Um, and it was it was very interesting uh, just being caught in those moments, just being taken back and just kind of looking at that ideology and saying, why do you think the way that you think just because of the way that my skin looks or that your skin looks? Um, why do you have so many preconceived ideas of who I am when you actually have no idea who I am? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say there were a few instances growing up where these things actually did happen. And uh, there was uh, somebody that uh, I, I would now call um, a friend or a good acquaintance uh, who actually I went to school with. And he was kind of known as actually being a pretty racist guy. And I believe it was, you know, 10th grade, maybe 11th grade. Uh, he and I were sat together. Uh, right next to each other in uh, the history class that we both had. Uh, and it was actually a very good experience because uh, I, I remember just joking around with him nonchalantly, actually helping him with homework uh, when it uh, came time to be the end of the semester and it was crunch time. And he and I actually developed a very good relationship. And uh, uh, he just said, you, you just, you've shifted my ideas so much about uh, the black community and black culture um, that he said, I, I can't really say that I'm really racist anymore. Uh, and I'm not saying that I tried to do that overtly. Uh, honestly, I was just trying to be a friend of somebody who I had to sit next to for an entire semester. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, it, it wasn't really on the forefront of my mind to say, I want to change him and I want to change his ideology. But I would say through um, the wisdom of God and where he places us in time and history. Uh, I think I was definitely used as an instrument to, to change somebody's thinking that was um, once very flawed and filled with error, but uh, now is filled with grace and would probably also call me a friend too. Yeah. And I think just uh, what you pointed to was the, the power of being in relationship really helps kind of cut through some of those preconceived notions, right? Yeah, for sure. It's like I say, you don't really know somebody until you know somebody. Uh, And it's through actually sitting with people and spending time with them day after day and getting to see them through joys and through struggles or even just mundane things like a a history class where you're struggling with homework. Uh, Those are the moments when uh, I would say the Lord really uses his means to accomplish his purposes. Uh, so that was a really edifying time for for myself and yeah, hopefully for him. But it, it was very formative for me, especially in, in thinking about these issues and saying, I, I think a lot of people have these these preconceived notions about the African-American community saying they're 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 not well spoken. They're not articulate. Their reading level is very low. Uh, the the culture is just very um kind of degenerate and more run down. Um, and now you, you look 
into you know past their teen years and they say they're they're more recipients of welfare the single motherhood rate in these neighborhoods is very very high um and i think they kind of conflate those issues with the actual ethnicity of the people in mind and they say this must equal this and i think once we kind of break down some of those barriers and we show that uh, race and culture are two very very different things and in my opinion, in my estimation, and in my experience, culture matters a whole lot more in this country and in this world more than race ever could. Yeah, amen. We're going to get into that, but I'm going to, before we dive into that, I want to I wanna kind of go through our typical questioning that we do with pastors and ask about some of the positive things that um, you see happening with the conversation of race in the United States, or even if you want to apply that more specifically to conversations of race in the CRC, like, do you see positive things happening with that conversation? I actually do. Um, not necessarily immediately in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, but I will say in the broader United States, we've seen things like uh, the African American unemployment rate being the lowest it has ever been in history, especially in the last couple of years. So that is something that is very encouraging. Um, you know, African-Americans saying, I'm not just going to be a recipient. I'm not just going to be a victim. I'm going to pick myself up by the bootstraps and actually find my individual purpose and capacity and communal purpose and capacity and go out and get a job and uh, bring home the bacon, either for yourself or for your family. So that is very encouraging. Um, also things like uh, African-American voting. Uh, I, I do see voting as a civic duty. Uh, I always have. That was something that was instilled in me at a very young age. Um, I voted in every single election that I've been eligible to vote in. And I think voter turnout for the African-American community and seeing that civic virtue at the forefront of their minds, that's also very prevalent and very encouraging uh, today. So those are some of the things that I really do see. And I think another thing that I really see as very encouraging is there's a big pushback against the dominant culture right now in the African-American community that says, you know, we don't have to be defined by our race. We can also be defined by what we believe, how we behave. Uh, we don't necessarily have to be defined by the color of our skin. And I think we're seeing a very large pushback. Uh, and even people have podcasts. Uh, specifically talking about these things, even hosted by African-Americans. I'm thinking of the Hodge twins uh, in particular. They're fun to listen to. Uh, so those are some very encouraging things that I do see in the broader United States. And so what would be, um, and uh, maybe you can, you can decide how you want to answer or whether you want to answer this, but what do you think's behind those positive things that you're, that you're seeing in the, in the, uh, black community or African-American community, however you want to word that. What's what's behind these positive shifts? What's causing that to happen, do you think? It's a really good question. And I think a big part of it is actually a reaction against the ideology that places people in a particular collective and says, therefore, you must be living this way. Uh, I, I think that is a really huge catalyst behind why we're seeing some of the things that we're seeing in these communities. Um, if you're told your entire life, 
oh, you're you're never going to get a job. Uh, you're going to have this amount of kids before you're 30 with this many different women. You're always going to be a welfare recipient. You're never going to be well-spoken or articulate. You might not even graduate high school. Um, I, I think if you're told those things over and over and over again, um, multiple things can happen. First, you might start to actually believe it and then actually self-fulfill these prophecies that have been put in front of you. But I think something that we're seeing right now that's very shocking is we're actually seeing a kind of pushback and contention against those things and kind of questioning, well, why, why do you see things this way? And why do you think that just because I am this color, this shade of skin that I have to, to do the things that I do, uh, believe the things that I believe or act the way that I act? Uh, so I think when we ask ourselves those questions, we tend to actually think about these issues deeply and then come to the conclusion, I don't have to. Um, I, I, I can graduate high school. Uh, I can go get a job and not be permanently poor in the United States. And I can at least wait until uh, after high school before I start having kids. Uh, so these are, I, I think some of this is a reaction to some of the, the attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that are imputed. Uh, on the African-American community. I think that's one of the biggest reasons, actually. Hmm. Interesting. And where where do you think, where do you hear voices um, talking about that on a regular basis? Um, I, I, I don't want to throw anybody particularly under the bus, but I will just go ahead and say it, it really is the broader uh, left culture. I, I think I can just go ahead and say that. It is these social justice activists, um, also the uh, the BLM activists too, who who are saying these things, and that's another thing that I think I can say is encouraging. Um, being somebody who has for years now stood in opposition to organizations such as BLM, it's also encouraging to see um, not just African Americans but even white people pushing back against movements like BLM. Uh, and from, from a biblical and Christian perspective, I've always found it interesting when uh, secularists, um, materialists, give themselves the authority to say that anything matters at all. Uh, when you start to throw words out there like such and such matters, I would say given your worldview and given your perspective and presuppositions about what the world is, how can you say anything matters? How can you say that one life does or doesn't matter over another? What gives you the right and by what standard are you actually judging these things so that you can give an actual accounting of what does and doesn't matter? I think it's only belief in the triune God revealed in scripture who has given us his word and who has told us and who has declared to us what has mattered and who has written to us on our hearts that we're all made in the image of God. And therefore, everybody's life has intrinsic value because he's bestowed that upon you as his image bearers. Yeah. And so you jumped in already um, a little bit into some of the concerns that you're seeing happening in uh, around the, the issue of race. And so we might as well uh, just dive into that a little bit further. And since you brought it up, um, why don't you dive in a little further? What concern, like some specific concerns you have with like the, the Black Lives Matter movement? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I think the biggest thing right now isn't necessarily um, saying that Black Lives Matter in particular, um, but my biggest my biggest pushback is turning everything in every instance into a race issue. That's probably one of my biggest problems because one of the worst things that you can be called today, at least in 2022, is a racist. Uh, you can lose so much business capital, financial capital, fellowship capital, um, personal reputability, uh, just by calling somebody a racist. And by people pushing this agenda and saying this instance is racist, that instance is racist. Well, personally, I believe you actually have to be able to discern somebody's intentions before you can actually make an assertion like that. Uh, you have all of your homework to do. Uh, and second of all, and we, we talked about this, I think, at another date, it, it makes these battles actually unwinnable. Um, by saying you have to fight these battles on these terms and these conditions, well, uh, they're, they're completely unrelated to the issue at hand. So you're making it an unwinnable argument. Um, so I would actually just call it out and say, I'm not actually going to fight this battle under your terms and, and go ahead and look for instances of racism where there are none. Um, what I prefer to do is evaluate things based off of their merit and based off of the evaluation of what is true. Um, and if there are actual instances of real racism, then I would say, I want to stand with you and I want to fight these things. Uh, because everybody is made uh, in the image of God and has that value bestowed on them and deserves to be treated as such. Uh, so I would say where they're actually calling foul ball, and it actually is a foul ball, I would say, okay, let's find the foul ball. Uh, and then let's let's play the game. Let's keep going. But just calling somebody racist while having no basis for it, I think that's disingenuous. And it's it's creating a battle that actually can't be won. So that's something that I do see is very concerning. Yeah. And one of the things that we have talked about is why this conversation is really important to get right is that the the treatment for an illness or the treatment for a problem needs to follow a proper diagnosis of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if you diagnose an issue wrong, you're going to provide the wrong treatment for it. And mm -hmm. so if we're, if we're calling, if we're diagnosing the problem of something as racism, but it's actually not racism, then we're, we're going to try to fix it in a way that's not helpful, right? Mm -hmm. And so we really need to try to dive down deeper in certain instances and ask, is it actually racism that's causing this problem or is it, or is it something else? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things I wanted to just affirm again, that you had said part of the conversation, part of the frustration has been that the way some of this has been framed is that it's really an unwinnable battle. Mm -hmm. And so I was just having um, a group of pastors and I are, are getting together talking about um, the, the race conversation. And so we read a book, uh, Reading While Black by Esau McCulley. And, and mm -hmm. I've been kind of dipping in and out of white fragility. And, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things uh, not Esau McCulley doesn't do that, but but in white fragility, you know, they paint this picture of 
just by and as being a, a majority people, you are inherently racist. Like you, there's nothing you can do about it. You are mm-hmm. racist, whether you want to or not. Mm-hmm. And I think, boy, that is, that's an unwinnable battle then mm-hmm. that that's painting in a corner. There's nothing I can do about my racism except for feel guilty about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, that's a really tough spot to be. That is a really tough spot to be in. So when am I going to get my uh, recompensation check for you being so racist? <laughs> <laughs> kidding, kidding. But uh, I, I really do see that as a problem. Uh, and I, I was in boxing for a couple, two, three years as a teenager. So I would say that's throwing punches actually at things that you cannot see. Uh, and, and it's actually throwing punches, I would argue, at an opponent that that doesn't exist. I'm not saying that racism uh, in specific instances do not exist or that racist people do not exist. But saying that everybody who is in an ethnic majority definitionally is inherently racist well, I'm sorry, we, we've ceased from being able to have an intelligible conversation on a neutral playing field here. You're asking me to concede to that uh, before I can ever actually uh, fix the actual problem that's at hand here. So again, I think it's just, it's it's making people define their terms a little bit more carefully uh, because even in white fragility, Robin DiAngelo's definition uh, kind of flutters here or there. It changes mid-book. Uh, I mean, I think the universally agreed upon definition of racism is discrimination against somebody based on their race or ethnicity. Um, but the inconsistent thing about some, some of these people is that changes depending on what they do or don't want to talk about. So it's just being honest about your terms uh, and about things that we can actually agree on. Uh, and really, it's, it's also about being honest about the actual issues at hand and calling things out in individual instances. If there are individual instances of real racism, then let's partner together and let's let's fight that together. And I would say we don't even necessarily need to be Christians to do that. Uh, we we who are given common grace, uh, even non-believers who are given common grace uh, and who have these things written on their hearts and on their minds, should be able to partner with us and say, no, th- this this actually is uh, not the way that uh, we're created to live. Uh, because these these things are are not helpful. So I don't know. I I just think that, uh, like I said, you you mentioned uh, white fragility and and the other book, reading while black. Uh, I I think there's. I'm not saying there can be no benefit found in those materials, but I think there's actually more damage done uh, than good in those books. Mm. Well, and and just to reaffirm one of the things that you said earlier, you had said you know show me show me an instance of racism and then let's stand together and, uh, and combat it and, and fight for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and you've done that, right. You, you were part of the 2019 synod where the, the issue of kinism came up and, and you were mm-hmm. part of conversations around that. And so why don't you uh, dive into a little bit more about that issue and the conversations you had and, uh, and what you thought about those decisions that were made in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that issue was well decided. I would say uh, kinism was declared officially a heresy uh, in the Christian Reformed Church in the 2019 Synod that I was at. And I thought that that was a pretty important thing uh, because of these things that were coming out of places like 
Classis Lake Erie at the time. Uh, and not all of Classis Lake Erie, but just there there were plenty of churches in Classis Lake Erie that I know of who had asked people to repent of these things. And they say, we really tried. Um, but these people are being very persistent in their error of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we ought to give credit where it's due for those who were not guilted by association. Um, Do you want to, just before we dive into it a little bit more, because um, probably not everyone listening to this even under, knows what kinism is. So why don't do you want to give us a definition of what kinism is? Uh, sure. The most basic definition that I can say is it's a form of racism that actually is rooted and grounded, they would say, uh, in the Reformed confessions and certain races being elected and preserved over against others. They would say they arrived at the conclusion of kinism or preservation of some races over another based off of that reformed hermeneutic. So that's in a nutshell what it is. It's, it, I try to call it racism with biblical justification. Yeah. Uh, that, that's essentially what it is. And I think we know very well that there is none of that. Um, and that's what was being talked about in Synod 2019. And it was a very rewarding experience to be a part of that and to be in some of these conversations about people who were very militant and saying, no, we need to take a very serious stand against this. And so we did. Uh, It was declared a heresy. uh, And I think there was a lot of conversation that went into that saying, you, I think before we declare something a heresy, we better be ready to say this person's not a Christian. Uh, and I think that that was a very important part of this conversation is, is it actually a heresy for somebody to say that somebody of a different ethnicity is lesser than others, or is it just an error in our theology? And the reason why I was happy that it was denounced as heresy is because of the uh, image of God, the imago Deo, um, when we look at human beings as created in the image of God. Is that everybody? Uh, I would say if that is everybody, then calling somebody less than the image of God is actually a mischaracterization and wrong understanding of who God himself is, uh, based off of who he has chosen his image bearers to be. Uh, And also, uh, by saying that these races, certain races can be Uh, selected for salvation over against others, or maybe they inherit a lesser salvation. It's really an attack on the gospel itself. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation with Willie. Until then, don't forget this is Christ Church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Reach the word in season and out of season and keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation.